theyeshiva.net. If you have a look at the Torah, you can open it to Parsha Shlach, page 102. It's the last mimer on the Parsha, column 1, Dafnun Aleph, column 3, or page 102, right column, the third paragraph from the top. You see the words Vayishlach, Yehoshua. This mimer was said by the Balatanya on Shabbos Parshas Shlach Tov Kuf Nun Hei. Tov Kuf Nun Hei would be 1895, the spring, the summer of 1895. And uh, it's printed in the Kutatoida and Parshas Shlach as the last mimer. Vayishlach Yehoshua Menashitim. I mentioned the year just because it's good to know the year when the Mimer was said by the Balatanya, but also because of something I once shared with you, and that is that the Balatanya was arrested, famous arrest and liberation on Yutas Kislev, Yat Kislev, Tovkov Nuntes. I said 18, I said 1895. Sorry, I'm a hundred years off. Tovkov Nunhe is 1795. 1795. The Balatani was arrested, Tovkov Nuntes, 1798, and then liberated on Yat Kislev, Yutas Kislev, famous Chagagula. And uh, the Maimorim after that changed in length and in style, completely changed. The Maimorim before that have a different style. I think I mentioned it a few times in our Shira. Most of the Maimorim that we learn are post Yutas Kislev, but this Maimer. He said, Shabbos Shlach Tovkov Nun Hei, which is before the Tanya was printed, before the story of Yutas Kislev. So therefore, there's a certain uh, fire with which he spoke. After Yutas Kislev, the Balatanya, um, the Maimarim were more uh, elaborate, explanatory. And the intellect of them and the structure of them sometimes eclipsed a little bit the fire in them. Before Yutas Kislev, on the other hand, the Maimarim was shorter and more fiery and pointed. So this is a Maimar of before Shabbos Shlach Tovkuf Nunhei, as I said, 1795. Okay, I see that on the net they also posted the source sheets. So if you go, if you're not on Zoom, if you go to the net and you'll see the video, the video on top, there's a banner, it says... Uh, Live now, Hasidus, and you click on it. So you can ask questions. It says on the, on the right, you can ask a question, but below the video, there's a source sheet with a PDF of the Mimer. So you could open it up and follow inside over there as well. Okay. It also says, ask your question. So if anybody wants to ask a question over there, they can also ask a question. I see there's already a few questions. Okay, I didn't say anything yet, but let's begin. Vayishlach Yeshua Menashitim Shnayim Anashim Eraglim Cheresh Leimer Luchur Uas Aritz Vesiricha Vegaim. You probably have guessed why this is the last Meimer of Parsha Shlach. Why is this the last one of Parsha Shlach? Simply because it's not a mimer on the parsha; it's a mimer on the haftarah. The haftarah 
of Parsha Shlach begins with Yehoshua Perik Beis, the second chapter of Joshua, and tells the story that Yehoshua, or in English, Joshua sent from Shittim, from a place called Shittim, Shnayim Anashim two spies. And these two spies, he said they had to be Margulim Cheresh. Cheresh means literally quiet. Gemara says deaf, like they should make believe they're deaf, but Cheresh usually is, in this case, many commentators say quiet, they should be very clandestine, very secretive, confidential. And he told them, go scrutinize, go see, go survey the land, the land of Canaan, particularly the city of Yericha, the city of Jericho. These are two spies, according to Chazal, they were Kalev and Pinchas. Now, Kalev was already a spy 40 years earlier, and he went a second time, together with Pinchas, who was, of course, a grandson of Aaron and a great nephew of Moshe Rabbeinu. And they both went, and the whole story of the Aftar is they go to Yericha, and they stay in the motel of a woman named Rachav, or in the home of a woman named Rachav, Rachav HaZoyna. Different interpretations what Zoyna means, whether it's literal, whether it's that she owned a uh, bed and breakfast, a motel, a hotel, an inn, a kretschma. And they are by Rachav. And there they find out from Rachav, who she has the pulse on, uh, she was the Google of the time, she had her finger on the pulse of uh, of the land. She knew everything that's going on, and she shares with the two spies of the of Yeshua what is going on, the the fear, the awe, the reverence that all of the tribes living in Canaan have before the Jewish people, and uh, they find out. The king finds out that there are spies, and in the famous story, she hides them on the roof. And then she uh, lowers them down through the window with her ropes. She tells them exactly where to hide to be able to escape detection and discovery by all of the police and military men who are searching for the spies. And ultimately they come back to Yehoshua and the rest, as they say, is history. A little while later, the Jews enter into Yisrael. So this is how the Aftarida begins, that Yeshua sent two spies to Yericha. He particularly told them to go to Yericha. That's where they went. They went from Shittim. They crossed the Jordan River. They went into Jericho. If you're familiar with the geography of Eretz Yisrael, they, of course, are on the Transjordan on the east, and they cross it to the west. They go into Yericha, and that's where they are with her, and then they escape, and they come back to Yehoshua. Says the Balatanya, he says it's obvious that Yeshua didn't do this on his own. It says Yeshua sent spies, that he just decided on his own. Obviously not. Hashem told him to do it. Now it's interesting, it doesn't say clearly that Hashem told him to do it. But the Balatani is assuming that Bevadai, certainly Yeshua wouldn't do such a major move of sending spies to go there to Israel if Hashem wouldn't have told them to do it. And we can understand why. First of all, a drastic move in the life of the Jewish people at that time should have been instructed by God. But most importantly, Yeshua was one of the spies 
40 years ago who saw the catastrophe that happened as a result of Moshe Rabbeinu sending spies. So Yeshua should now repeat the same story and send spies again. And what happens if they come back with a bad report? So the Balatanya says it's certain that Hashem told Moshe Yeshua to send the spies, and that's why he sent them. In the opening of this parsha, it says, Hashem tells Moshe, send to you men. To you. He's not sending them to you. So Chazal say, and Rashi brings it in the beginning of the parsha, means, it has to be. It's your thing. Shlach Lecha means send them on your behalf, not on my behalf. I am not telling you to do it. The Rebbeinu Shalom told Moshe, this is not an instruction. Don't think that you have to follow it. If you want to do it, if you want Shlach. No. It is a strange thing that Moshe Rabbeinu did it. Right? Hashem told him, I'm not taking responsibility. I'm not telling you to do this. You don't have to oblige me. You don't have to obey me. It's up to you. Shlach lecha. This is something that is your decision. It's on your behalf. It's not on my behalf. It's not a mitzvah of Hashem. L'dayitcha. It's your, on your das. Your consent, your volition, your desire. It's mamish your decision. Ani eni mitzvah. Moshe Rabbeinu went ahead and he did it. Yeshua now, 40 years later, Send spies again, not 12 spies, he sends two spies. Says the Balatanya, it's obvious that Yeshua wouldn't do such a drastic move without Hashem telling him, especially after he saw what happened. So therefore, he assumes that Yeshua was told by Hashem to send the spies. Now, besides the fact that Yeshua saw the catastrophe, it's obvious that Moshe and Yeshua didn't do things on their own. By Moshe, by the spies, it says clearly, So the Torah, as a Yotzim and Aklal, the Torah, as an exception, has to emphasize that it's done on your behalf. I'm telling you to send them on your behalf, not with my commandment, not with my instructions. But the fact that it explicitly says it by Moshe is because we understand that Moshe, throughout all the years, would not make such a decision, a very major decision, without... Hashem's uh, permission or Hashem's commandment. So it says clearly that Hashem said it's Ladaich. But where it doesn't say that, we have to go back to the natural assumption that Yeshua was following divine instructions. To understand this, so first of all, we have to understand what's talking the reason. By Moshe, Hashem left, left it up to him. I'm not mixing it. You want to do it, do it. I'm not stopping you, but I'm not telling you to do it. By Yeshua, he tells him to do it. Number one. Number two, by Moshe Rabbeinu, he sends the spies over the whole land. He tells them, Aluzeba Negev, go and go across the land, and I want you to check out the whole land. By Yeshua, 
<coughs> That's not the case. He doesn't tell Yahushua to send them throughout the whole Eretz Yisrael. Only one place, Yerichai. Now Yerichai, Chazal call Man'ulash Eretz Yisrael. It's the lock to Eretz Yisrael. It's like when you have the key to the lock, you open the lock, you can get into the house. So Yericha is called Man'ula, Man'ul, Man'ul, like the, the, the lock that opens up. When you open it up, you open up Yericha, you get into Yericha, you get to Eretz Yisrael. So it's called Man'ulash Eretz Yisrael. And the Torah Taka says, Yerichai Segeris Umasugeris. Yerichai was very closed off. It had a big fortress, the famous walls of Jericho, Yeshua Perik Vav. The walls later sank when Yeshua and the Jewish people came in. So Yeshua was really the key to get into Israel. Yeshua was on the border, close to the border, and it protected the other parts of the land because of the power that was mobilized in there and its great fortress. So Yerichai was like the portal to get into the land. It also says in Yeshua Perich of Dalit that in Yericha you had representatives of all of the nations, of all of the tribes who lived there. You had the Chiti and the Amairi. All of them were Bali Yericha. They all lived in Yericha. So Yericha was like a very central place that had representatives of all the tribes and it was very protected. And therefore he says, why were they all there? Because it was like the center. It was the hub, which was the key to Eretz Yisrael. So every, all the nations lived there from all of the tribes in Eretz Yisrael. And it was also the key, the lock, to get into Eretz Yisrael. So by, by conquering Yerichai, you could conquer Eretz Yisrael. So that's why we could understand why Yeshua told the spies to go to Yerichai. Because it's like, really, you go to Yerichai, you see what's happening there, you get the feel of what's happening in the whole land. But still... It's not what happened with Moshe Rabbeinu. Moshe could have also sent them to Yericha. He did not. Moshe sent them to the whole land. And Moshua, with Hashem's commandment, only sends them to Yericha. So we have two unique differences. Moshe does it on his own. Yeshua does it on behalf of the Rebbeinu Shalom. Moshe sends them to the whole land, and Yeshua sends them to Yericha. <laughs> We have a principle, and this principle guides all of the Maimarim and that every story in Tanakh that exists on a physical level also exists in a person's life on a spiritual level. So you have spies on a physical, historic, concrete level, Moshe and Yeshua sending spies, but you also have spies on a spiritual level. You have the conquest of Eretz Yisrael physically, but you have the conquest of Eretz Yisrael also spiritually. As the Tzemach Tzedek in his commentary on this Maimir in Oyer the grandson of the Balatanya, he says that even though right now Tzemach Tzedek living in the 1700s and the early 1800s, he says even though right now Eretz the physical Eretz Yisrael, he's writing in the early 1800s, is not in our hands. The spiritual Eretz Yisrael, Yisrael above, is given to all the Jewish people. So all of the stories about entering Eretz Yisrael, conquering Eretz Yisrael, going into Yericha, sending spies, maybe on a physical level, they don't uh, apply. Nowadays, it's not a story happening now, but the spirituality of it is a timeless theme that exists in the lives of the Jewish people. So the Balatanya says, I want to understand in his words, Eich, Inyan, Zehu, Nimtza, Yisrael. 
how can we understand this applying to all of the Jewish people? That when it comes to Yericha, you need spies. When it comes to the rest of Eretz Yisrael, you don't need spies. Moshe sent spies to the Eretz Yisrael, but that was on his own behalf. What Hashem says is, Yericha, you need spies. The rest of Eretz Yisrael, you don't need spies. So here we have a big difference. When Moshe is deciding it on his own, he sends spies everywhere. When Yeshua is doing it on behalf of the instruction of the creator of the world, only spies in Yericha and nowhere else. How do we understand this in a Jew's life? Al-Tarebbe here, the Baltani, is not explaining the story on a pshat level. The literal interpretation, why Yeshua sent them to Yericha and Moshe sent them everywhere. The Baltani is explaining it on an internal, psychological, emotional, and spiritual level, based on the first introduction that Yeshua is doing it on, as a commandment, and Moshe is doing it on his own. He makes it, the Pasuk says, Vavram, Zakir, Baba Yaman. We all know the Pasuk, Vavram, Zokin, Baba Yamin, Vashem, Beiriches, Avram, Bakat. So Avram was Zokin, he got old, Baba Yamin, he came in days. Baba Yamin means he came on in days. And the question is, it says Zokin, why does it say Baba Yamin? Avram, Zokin, Baba Yamin. If you're Zokin, if you're old, obviously Baba Yamin, you're coming on in your days. You have acquired many days. Upirish Bezoya, the Zoya says, Shemislabish Bayamin. A beautiful interpretation. Baba Yama means he came into the days. He enclosed himself in the days. Avram Zakin Baba Yama. He he walked in, he entered into his days. Baba Yama, Nislabish Bayama. Shahayama Mebchinis Lavushin Anitamanasham. Every day offers another garment that's given to the soul. Every day, the soul grows and develops another lavush, another garment. So Baba Yamin, he came into the days because the days dressed him up with lavushim. Every day, Avram Avinu walked into the day because the day afforded him an opportunity. It gave him a new experience, like literally a new garment. Every day, you get to learn something new about life. Every day something will happen that did not happen the day before, even if you try hard, that the day should be predictable and fixed. Every day there'll be a new text, a new WhatsApp, a new email, a new conversation, a new encounter, a new experience, or just the fact it's a new day, an ayatok, a new day. So because it's a new day, Baba Yamin, he entered into the day. Because the day gives him a new lavush, a new garment. That's what the Zoyer says. This is going to be the introduction that we'll be able to help us understand to go back to the story of Yericha and Yeshua and Moshe the spy. It's going to be a long introduction. Then the Balatani is going to get back to the story. And every person was given a number of years based on the levushim, on the garments they need for their soul. Kamayshakasav, as the Pasuk says in Tehillim Koflamates, Yamim Yutsru. Yamim Yutsru means the days were formed, they were created. Hashem created and formed the days of every person based on the garments that his or her soul needs to acquire during their life. Because every day, Baba Yamim, 
Every day you go into the day, every day gives you another levush of the neshama, just like a body cannot function, cannot, it's very difficult for a body to live without levusha. A body needs garments. So he says the neshama also needs levusha. Why does a body need garments? Well, we know if it's cold outside, you need protection. You need some type of clothes, a coat to protect you from the cold. If it's hot outside, the person can get scorched and burnt. Again, you need clothes to protect you. There's the element of clothes, which we call tzniyas, modesty, in the terms of the term of the Pasuk and Adam and Chava were ashamed to go out and to even be themselves without clothes, naked. So that's another element of clothes. And then, of course, there's the element of clothes that adds respect to a person. A person wears clothes that adds a certain glory, a certain glamour. The Gemara says, Rabbi Yochanan Lamani Mechabdusa. Rabbi Yochanan used to call clothes Mechabdusa from the word covet. It adds glory and respect to a person. So therefore, a body needs clothes, a body needs lavushim. Here we're not talking about the clothes of the body, we're talking here about the clothes of the soul. The soul's lavushim, the soul's garments. This is part of the expression of the soul, the experience of the soul, that the soul should be able to function well. The soul should be able to operate on its maximum level. Every day gives another opportunity for the soul's growth. And that's the Baba Yamin. He entered into the days because every day is a new lavush that he put on. He experienced the day fully. You could just live the day and you don't really put on anything during the day. You don't learn anything new. You're not changed during the day. Avram Zakin didn't only become old. A lot of people become old. Bad Bayamin, as Arayim in the tank, he went into the days. Every day gave him a new lavush. Who he was today was not who he was yesterday. Tell you a gishmakamaisa. This happened with my father, Zachernal of Racha. My father, Olavashalam, was a journalist for many, many years. He was a journalist for over 50 years. And he was a seasoned journalist. Today, with the internet, everybody's a journalist. Everybody posts stories, everybody posts pictures. Every citizen of our planet is a journalist. But before the internet, journalists were interesting people because they were really in charge on capturing and reporting the news. So my father worked for many newspapers for many years, and then he founded his own newspaper, the Algemeiner Journal, in 1972, after the Day Morning Journal, which was a Yiddish daily closed down. And uh, he really lived in that world of journalism. He would often travel to the UN and to Washington and the press conferences and dinners. He was a very diversified, universal type of person, very curious and pretty courageous and fearless. In 1971, my father decided to take a trip to the Soviet Union. Soviet Union was then under Khrushchev, probably. Khrushchev, Khrushchev. It was locked off. Yericho Segeris and Musagaris, and the Soviet Union was Segeris and Musagaris. Millions of Jews in a prison. My father wasn't easy to get into Russia, but he went as a journalist, as an American journalist, because he worked for American newspapers, and he went for a few weeks. Now, my father grew up in Russia. So for him, Russia was his cradle. This was, this was his country. His father came from Georgia. But he grew up, was born near Moscow, Mamantovka, and he grew up there. 
those were the years of his youth. So he was really coming back home, and he had a lot of relatives who remained in Russia. And he was there for a few weeks. It was a fascinating experience. But here's what I want to share with you, one little very powerful story. The Lubavitcher Rebbe had an underground network in the Soviet Union. Most people don't know about it. Even in Lubavitch and Chabad, they don't know about it because it was completely secretive. Remember that in the Soviet Union, nothing could be public. If you kept Shabbos in the open, you could be sent to Siberia. You could easily lose your job. Sometimes you could be put into prison for years. Some people were killed. It was purgatory on earth, Gehenim on earth. Shuls, every shul, they had a few shuls open, but full of spies. So only older people would come. And everybody, every, every other person could have been a spy. Nobody said a word. The chazan could be a spy. The rov could be a spy. The shamash could be a spy. The gabai could be a spy. You couldn't trust anybody. Everybody was there and they would inform to the KGB, to the secret police who comes to shul, what they spoke about. It was like everything was controlled. And it was literally a prison of millions, hundreds of millions of people. The Rebbe, who had many Hasidim there, had an underground network. And he worked with the Mossad. He worked with all types of people who were from very different backgrounds. To maintain this underground network, he would send tefillin, mezuzahs, svarim, sedurim, chumashim, pay teachers, shochtim, moyalim, to maintain some segment of Jewish life. It's really an incredible story because this is an underground network that went on for 70 years until communism fell in 1989 under Michal Gorbachev, and then Judaism came out into the open. So my father told me that before he went to Russia, the Rebbe asked if he could see him. Most Jews who would go to Russia, if they knew what's going on, they would come to the Lubavitcher Rebbe because he was so, uh, he had such a powerful network and he needed everybody's help. If you're going, he wanted you to take something. And nobody could know about it. Everything had to be secretive. All the letters that the Rebbe would send to Russia, he signed Zayda, grandfather. Because it was like a Zayda writing and he couldn't send it from his address. They shouldn't see it's coming from a Jewish place. Everything secret. My father went into the Rebbe, and he was there for close to four hours. The Rebbe just asked him to do visit people. He gave him missions, suggestions, etc. Four hours. Fine. He was in Russia for a few weeks. He traveled around. He met a lot, a lot of people. And then he came back to America. And he went into the Lubavitcher Rebbe to give a report. He had 400 panim, 400 kvitlach of Jews. But he couldn't take them. He had to memorize them. He told me he wrote down the names on his body because they wouldn't let him out of Russia with so many pieces of paper. It's too suspicious. And he went into the Lubavitcher Rebbe's room in the middle of the night, around 2 in the morning or 2.30 in the morning. And he was there another few hours. And he shared everything. The Rebbe knew everything very well was going on in Russia. And he wanted to hear every place he was, who he met, the families he visited, the homes he visited, what's happening, the names of the kids, what they're doing, how their experiences are. And for hours, my father gave the Lubavitcher Rebbe a detailed report of everything he saw 
and he heard during his three weeks in the communist Soviet Union. He told me that a few times there were such emotional stories he was sharing about the Jews in Russia that the Rebbe himself in his room just broke down sobbing. That's how emotional it was. He was there for almost four hours, meaning almost a whole night. The Rebbe saw hundreds of guests before him, but this was after he was the last one. He finished. The Rebbe thanked him. He walked out of the Lubavitcher Rebbe's room and out of the window, the window on Eastern Parkway, you could see that dawn has broken, what we call Aloysa Shachar. The rays of light started to come up. It wasn't yet Neitzacham, it wasn't yet sunrise, but the rays of light started to appear. And my father was walking out of the room. He walked backwards out of respect and he came to the door. And suddenly he hears the Rebbe talking to himself, so to speak to himself, but my father heard it. He said it was an unbelievable lesson in life. The Rebbe looked out the window and saw the light coming, the rays of light, and speaking to himself, he picked up both of his hands and he said, Ah, Anayetog, a new day. My father walked out of the room. And he said, it's not like he slept the whole night and he woke up after eight hours fresh. It was a night of terrible, terrible pain because of everything that he heard about what's going on in Russia. And the people were so close to him. They were his beloved students, like children. And for hours he spoke about it. And the Rebbe was listening and asking questions. And then it was over. And he looked out after this whole night and he saw the new rays and he says, Ah, Anayetog, a new day. He says, you saw what it means to live every moment and to be present. There's a new day. It's fresh, new opportunities, new energies, new resources, new creativity. There's a new dawn. We often schlep the baggage of yesterday into the day, into the new day. That's how it is. And life really is never new. It's just a continuation of the old. But that ability to really be able not to forget about what happened last night, but to be able to embrace a new day, that's the Pshat Baba Yaman. You don't just live every day on the peripheral, on the outside, like an objective observer. You know, they say there's three types of people. There's people who make things happen. There's people who watch things happen. And there's people who want to know what happened. Baba Yama means you don't stand on the outside and say, what happened? Baba Yama means you make it happen. You you go into the day. What does it mean you go into the day? You allow the day to dress you up. You're fully in the day. You allow the day to impact you because every day brings new clothes to the soul. Every day you get dressed in a new way. Every day brings you new ideas, new wisdom, new experiences, new emotions, new challenges, new gifts, new struggles, but new blessings, new resources, new opportunities for self-discovery, for discovery of the people around you, for a new discovery of the self and the world. This is how the Balatanya teaches of Ramzak and Baba Yam. So and therefore, Baba Yamamus has a different interpretation. Literally, and here he says, Baba Yama means he went into the days because he allowed the days to dress him up with the new experience that every day gives. But Baba Yamamusa means Baba Yaman, he came 
Bayamim, with all of his days. The base, the prefix of a base could mean in or with. Babayam means he went in, he entered into the days. Babayam also means he came Bayamim with all of the days. No day was missing. The Zoya says, like no day was missing. It wasn't like some days, eh, they just <laughs> it was a wasted, wasted day. Babayam as Yikumen mit alatek. He came with all of his days. No day was missing. There was no day you could say, this was just a foolish, stupid, superficial day, wasted of a time. Because even the days that present different types of experiences, if you fully go into them, it's not a wasted day. It teaches you something. It transforms you in one way or another. Different ways, different opportunities, different journeys. It takes you on a different, maybe a, a, a winding path. You're not going on the cotton the, the, on the you know on the on the regular on the regular road, but it's not a wasted day. But by Yamin, he came with all the days. When Avram got old, every day was there. Every day could be put in the resume. Every day was part of the diary. There was no day he was embarrassed of, or a day that he felt foolish about, or a day that he felt it was wasted because he understood. That every day there's a new lavush for the neshama, and yamim yutsru means every person was given the amount of days that they need in order to be able to fulfill their mission in this world, in order to be able to allow their soul to grow the garments the soul has to grow during its days. So therefore, this person needs this amount of days. But yamim yutsru, it's not a mistake. Yamim yutsru, the pasuk says, your days are formed, your days are fashioned. We're going to go for another seven minutes till 8.30. This comes through the Torah and the Mitzvahs, which is the two terms that encompass all of Avaitis Hashem. So through the Torah and the Mitzvahs that the person is involved in Biyamav during his days, each of this the learning of every day, the mitzvahs of every day, the experiences of every day, which are all included in Torah and mitzvahs, this is what creates these levushah. Because the amount of garments that the soul needs are not just random, but they're measured according to the number of the days of a person's life. So every day, that's a waste. A day in which a person, he says, a day in which I'm not fully present intellectually, emotionally, spiritually in my relationship with my soul and with God. A day in which the Torah and the mitzvahs is nullified from the person's life is a day in which the soul is missing the garment that it needed that day. That's what he says. Basically, the soul is missing an experience. It's missing a lavush. It's missing a garment. Why? Because this day just went to waste. And this day was needed. This day and this hour was needed. You needed the lavush. But I let it go to waste. So therefore, he says, Could be one day, could be two days. To understand what this means. What does it mean, the soul's garments? I understand the body needs garments. 
I'm wearing a shirt. I'm wearing a jacket. I'm wearing a tie. I don't know how much the body needs a tie. But we have garments. We understand the body's garments. You walk outside, you wear garments. You wake up, you get out of bed, you put on clothes, as we explained before. What's the concept of a soul's garments? And why does the soul need garments that it shouldn't be naked? What do you care if the soul is naked? I understand when the body doesn't have clothes, it's embarrassing. But before they ate sadas, before they ate from the tree, they also walked around without clothes. Afterward, the body needed clothes. Why does the soul need clothes? And what are these clothes? What do we mean when we say clothes? We dress up the soul with what? Why do we want to dress up the soul? Maybe it's better if the soul is beer without clothes. And this is mentioned in the Torah. It says, And this is how the Zohar, which is, of course, an explanation of the Torah, explains Baba Yom. Why does it say in Torah to let us know this concept? The Torah wants us to know that every day brings us new garments for the soul. Avram Avinu walked in into every day. In other words, every day dressed him up with Levushan. And if I'm a vatal Torah mitzvah one day, I'm diminishing, I'm depleting the garments that my soul needs. Why is that relevant? In other words, you could say, Hashem wants you to live every day in a certain way. And if you're not living that way, you're missing something. There is something you're not fulfilling. I got that. But somehow the Torah wants us to understand it's not just you're missing something. You're not doing the right thing. You're missing a levush for the neshama. What is it that we're trying to understand, that, that we gain from this knowledge? So this is the first paragraph of the mind of Ayishlach Yeshua. We ask the questions about the spies, all the questions about Moshe and Yeshua. Wants to understand what it means in a person's life. And goes into discuss the Vavram Zoke Ba Bayaman. Okay, we're going to stop here and take a break here. And Bezir Hashem, we will continue Thursday morning, 7 30 a.m. I hope there won't be any takolas and setbacks. We'll be able to start Mamish on time. I wish everybody a beautiful and meaningful day. Ba Bayaman. Thank you very much. We'll take some questions. If anybody wants to ask questions, we'll take a few minutes of questions. Let me see if there's any questions. Okay. So somebody says, Baba Yamim in the sense is full days, opposite of killing time. Yeah. What would your Helikatata think about the censorship and control occurring occurring presently in the media? My father's in the oil of Mahamas, over there there's no censorship. Was the Lechelcha to Avram Avinu also just permissive and not an instruction? No, the there doesn't say Lech. Oh, because it says Lechelcha, Lechelcha. Interesting. Um, yeah, the Jews knew that they were supposed to go into the land of Israel. Did the, did the other nations know of this as well, or they had no idea? If you read Yahushua, if you read Joshua chapter 2, which is the Haftar of this week. Take a look and you'll see that Rachav told the spies that they are aware that the Jewish people are on their route to the land of Israel. They were aware of it. And she said, you don't have what to fear because your awe and reverence is deeply embedded in all of their hearts. So apparently they knew. 
Now the Talmud says, the Talmud Yerushalmi, the Jerusalem Talmud says, and the Rambam quotes it, that before Joshua entered into the land, he sent a letter to every one of the empires, the tribes, the kings, and the nations that lived there. And he offered them one of three options. Option number one is they can relocate. Option number two is they can remain and live peacefully with the Jewish people according to the moral code of the seven Noahide laws. So they would live under the jurisdiction of the Jewish people, pay taxes, and follow the morality of the Sheva Mitzvah B'nai Noach. This would be called a Ger Toshav, meaning not to become Jewish. They could remain as they are, but they have to get rid of idolatry, adultery, murder, the pagan idolatry, sacrificing people, you know, and all the orgies revolving idolatry. They have to embrace the seven Noahide laws, and then they could live there in the Jewish land. Eretz Yisrael, that was option number two. Option number three is, if they want to remain and they don't want to uh, change their moral code, then they could fight. These were the three options. In fact, there was one of the big tribes, one of the seven nations, called the Girgashi, and the Girgashi left. He he relocated. He just left. He didn't want to be there. didn't want to be under the Jewish people. They just left. They found another place to live. So this was the three options that Yeshua offered all of the nations. And it's interesting. Even those who chose to go to war, there was a certain system. The law was he was not allowed to surround a city from all four sides, only three sides meaning he always had to give them an option to leave. They always had to have an option to leave and to uh, and to be able to go out. Even in the middle of the war, you couldn't surround them from all four sides because when you surround them from all four sides, you're forcing them to fight because they have no choice. Out of desperation, they have nothing left but to fight. So you have to leave one side open so that at any point in the middle of the war, they can just flee and they would not be pursued, which is quite a fascinating way of uh, waging a battle. And it's also interesting psychologically, you know. You can't uh, besiege somebody from all four sides because then you just create an impossible, desperate situation. They have to fight back. You know, you have to let people, as they say, climb down the tree. So you have to give an option, you know, let them leave. If they want to leave in the middle, they regret the war, they can leave. This was another very interesting way how we had to fight the war. So I wish you all a beautiful day. A lot of Hatzlochem, my love and blessings to all of you. It should be a day of Ba, Bayamim, to try to enter the day fully. Tomorrow morning, Tuesday, we'll have a share for women, 9.30 a.m. Same place, same location. You have it on the yeshiva.net or on Zoom. That's tomorrow morning, 9.30, and we will resume. We will ha- we'll continue the Mimer, God willing, Thursday morning, 7.30 a.m. We'll try to keep it sharp. Today I had a problem with the internet and with the source sheets, but uh, we'll try to get it fixed. Hatzloch Rabba and have an amazing and beautiful day. Regards to Eretz Yisrael, we hope to see you there. Everybody. We're all waiting. This class is brought to you by the yeshiva.net. Please help us continue the classes. Make even a small contribution at www.theyeshiva.net slash donate.